Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In this podcast, we will share some key highlights from the biennial international workshop on chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which was held recently in Boston, Massachusetts. Tune in as we bring you expert interviews covering the latest updates in the treatment and management of CLL. First, Mazia Shadman, Kerry Rogers, and Paul Hampel talk on optimizing initial therapy in CLL, the current role of continuous BTK inhibitors, and clinical considerations for using these agents. There's a lot of activity in, in the research uh, field for CLL to come up with treatments that are first chemotherapy free. I think we've achieved that. To, to make it time limited and provide a treatment that can not only control patients' disease, but also give them the opportunity of being off treatment and hopefully for a long time. And so the time limited and maybe all oral therapy, so it would be nice to avoid intravenous therapy and uh, infusions. And so I would say oral non-chemotherapy time limited uh, strategy would be extremely helpful if we can come up with, 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 a, with a regimen that can provide that. Now, there are a number of clinical trials that are ongoing or planned, and we're hoping that eventually that will be a treatment option for our patients. Uh, of course, we have a look at cure as well. So if these remissions are long enough that, at least for the average age of CLL patients in their expected uh, life, they don't have a recurrence of CLL, we can maybe call it a functional cure. But the first step is to have long remission with these time-limited therapies. So I'm really excited at this meeting. We had like a, a first-line therapy session where um, I'm going to focus on the role of continuous BTK inhibitors and kind of compare that to the uh, standard option of venetoclax and obinutuzumab and then a combination of BTK inhibitor and venetoclax, which is not approved in the United States but is an emerging option. Um, so I think like uh, given those three choices, it's uh, really important to consider that when talking about the role of continuous BTK inhibitors, just uh, keeping in contact of what the other two options are, which are both not continuous but fixed duration therapies with either a year of venetoclax and obinutuzumab or BTK inhibitor venetoclax. Um, so uh, the continuous BTK inhibitor therapy was the first one of these three standard options that was approved during widespread clinical use and has a few advantages. Um, one of them is definitely that it's very easy for both physicians and for patients. So it's just continuous oral therapy and a lot of patients prefer to just take a pill every day and go about their business. It's very easy to start taking, to continue taking, and so it has that convenience factor. Um, anything that involves venetoclax or an anti-CD20 monoclonal um, requires visits for monitoring for the venetoclax or infusions, which the continuous BTK inhibitors don't. Um, of course, the efficacy is completely outstanding. There's been several trials showing that continuous BTK inhibitors have um, compared very favor favorably with improved progression-free survival compared to standard chemoimmunotherapy um, regimens, and actually uh, has an overall survival benefit uh, with ibrutinib and the addition of rituximab to ibrutinib in a first-line setting compared to our best chemoimmunotherapy, which is FCR. And you know, continuous BTK inhibitors are um, shown to be suitable in older or less fit patients, just a very effective therapy across a lot of different um, uh, populations of patients with CLL. 
Uh, also, uh, there's uh, evidence in our highest risk patients, like those with deletion 17P, that progression-free survival is similar for patients with deletion 17P CLL and those whose CLL does not have deletion 17P, which really levels the progression-free survival in the first-line setting for that high-risk group, which you don't necessarily see with the other options. You definitely don't with venetoclax and obinutuzumab, and we're still kind of uh, feeling that out with the BTK inhibitor VEN combination with additional follow-up. The drawback, of course, to continuous BTK inhibitor therapy or any continuous therapy is ongoing toxicity. Um, I think people are by now very familiar with the toxicity profile of BTK inhibitors, especially with like bleeding and cardiovascular adverse events such as hypertension and arrhythmias. But there's also things that impact quality of life for patients such as joint and muscle aches, things like that. And with a continuously dosed therapy, there's continued exposure to even low-grade adverse events, which can really impact how um, patients are feeling. And so that's really the disadvantage. And of course, economic, there's financial toxicity to continuous therapy. Um, so I think today, continuous BTK inhibitor therapy represents uh, an advantage in terms of efficacy for patients with deletion 17 PCLL selecting a first treatment. Um, and also offers an advantage for anyone that is looking for a highly convenient and a highly effective therapy. And that has to be balanced against the drawback of continued toxicity, which you don't get with the two fixed duration options. So I look forward to discussing that with my colleagues. So we now have uh, three covalent BTKIs approved in uh, all settings for, for CLL and first ibrutinib, then acalabrutinib, most recently xanabrutinib. Um, there's uh, non-covalent BTKIs coming down down the pike, uh, most notably protobrutinib, which has an approval now in the mantle cell lymphoma space, and due to its rating and NCCN guidelines can be obtained off-label in the setting of, of relapsed uh, CLL, having seen one of those prior covalents. Nemdobrutinib uh, is also probably the, the other one that's furthest along in development, but without any label approval uh, is not something you're gonna be able to obtain off-study. Um, as far as the covalent BTKIs, these, uh, you know, we've kind of said they're all at least uh, equal in efficacy and the latter two uh, showing in head-to-head -head data in the relapse refractory setting, but often, you know, kind of extrapolated to the frontline setting, uh, reduced uh, toxicities uh, for, for acalabrutinib in the Elevate RR study and then uh, uh, Alpine study showing xanabrutinib have not only decreased toxicity, but uh, also some improvement in PFS. Um, so I think more to come on that uh, right now. Um, the way that I think people are using these in the community is, and my approach is if you're already on uh, ibrutinib and you're tolerating it well, and um, you're not having any of these toxicity issues, I'm certainly not taking people who are currently taking uh, on ibrutinib and having a nice response and tolerating it well and switching them over to one of the newer agents. Um, however, if you do have toxicity, I certainly have a, a lower threshold knowing that there's, there are some small studies, but prospective studies showing that you will often get a, a lower rate of recurrence, or if it does recur at a lower uh, grade toxicity, if you stop uh, ibrutinib and then go to acalabrutinib or go to xanabrutinib, or even uh, some limited data uh, presented in the last year of stopping acalabrutinib due to toxicity and transitioning to xanabrutinib. Um, and either not having recurrence of that same toxicity or having it occur at a, at a lower level. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting that we didn't quite realize you know, previously perhaps was when you stop the drug due to toxicity, uh, they, may, they may not need to uh, immediately go to the next line of therapy. Uh, and this is uh, the data that I'm kind of referring back to here 
comes from longer term follow from E1912, which was ibrutinib-rituximab versus FCR. So yes, these patients got an anti-CD20 and probably most people are not giving an anti-CD20 with a continuous uh, covalent PTK inhibitor in the frontline or relapse setting. But the point being is that there was a cohort of patients there who stopped their ibrutinib due to a reason other than progression. So namely toxicity or patient preference or, or whatever. And it was about two years before uh, the disease progressed and they were going to need therapy again. So it, it's not a given that just because we think of this drug as a you know very strong arm uh, on the lid that's controlling the disease very well without necessarily you know squashing it down and, and delivering these MRD uh, type remissions that you see with venetoclax based or chemotherapy based in the past. It's more of a, a, a strong arm of control. Um, it's still not necessarily uh, true that if you take that arm off, in the setting of, of disease stability or when uh, when you're stopping it due to a toxicity that you'll need immediately need to reach for something else from your toolkit to, to put back on. Next, you will hear from Farah Nadio, who discusses research exploring the genomics of Richter's transformation, Elisa Tenhaken, who highlights the need to continue researching the biology of Richter's, and Adam Kitai, who discusses a study investigating the use of CAR-T therapy in this setting. We have studied the genomics of research transformation through whole genome sequencing analysis. And what we have found is that there is basically lots of driver alterations in the genome of research transformation that were not present in the CLL phase of the disease. For instance, we have found that around 30% of the register carry alterations in NOT1 and around 70 to 90% of the register carry one or multiple alterations in the genes involved in cell cycle, MIC, NF-kappa-B pathway, and also some chromatin remodelers. What we have also found in the genome of Richter is that compared to the CLL, which is a disease in which the tumor has very few number of chromosomal alterations, the Richter have a massive genomic complexity with multiple chromosomal alterations, chromotriptic events, etc., which basically shatter the genome of the Richter and introduce multiple driver alterations. We are doing our best uh, to really dissect both tumor intrinsic and extrinsic changes that uh, occur um, in these animals, which uh, have been um, very nicely um, able to recapitulate and be faithful to human disease. We're still far from understanding uh, a lot about Richter syndrome biology. Uh, we still need um, a lot of functional validation of the many recurrent events that have been uh, discovered in human genetic studies. So I think, I think we are a few years away of really understanding what is the cell of origin of this disease, how, uh, how early can we um, intervene to um, um, avoid or delay uh, or cure uh, potentially or treat patients before they are fully transformed. Uh, so uh, we do know that T-cells and T-cell exhaustion facilitates transformation. Um, at the same time, uh, we don't know which molecular drivers on the, on the, on the tumor cells may even further facilitate um, changes in the oncogenic circuitry. We don't know much about the epigenetics and this is something that we're heavily investigating in my lab at the moment. This is a really a big pet project of mine. Um, I've been working on this for quite some time. And so I was excited that um, I got to present it here at IWCLL. 
So uh, this is a multi-center international study um, retrospective that looks at the use of standard of care anti-CD19 directed CAR T cell therapy for Richter's transformation. So this study was based off of a previous study that myself and uh, Dr. David Bond, a colleague of mine at OSU performed, of nine patients who received Axacel for Richter's transformation. Um, and in that study, those nine patients did remarkably well um, with uh, close to 100% response rate with one patient dying of AE, but he did actually respond if you looked at CT scans that were performed around the time. So ultimately, this led to a multi-center uh, initiative because it is very difficult to do a Richter's transformation study, number one. And it's even more difficult when you're using um, anti-CD19 CAR T cell therapy, which um, wasn't really approved for Richter's transformation until recently. Um, and so this was be basically most of these patients probably got off-label CAR T cell therapy. Um, but now Lysacel is actually approved for Richter's transformation because in the label, you can give it to patients who have transformed indolin lymphoma, which Richter's transformation is. So we had seven centers and we had 55 patients and they either received Axacel, Lysacel, Brexacel, or Tisacel. Um, and it looked like the overall response rate for these 55 patients was around 61%. And the PFS and the OS um, were not as um, high as I'd hoped. For the PFS was around four months and the OS was around eight months. Now, when you look at these numbers, you might say, well, CAR T cell therapy probably doesn't work for Richter's transformation. But I would argue that these patients patients who were included in this particular analysis were very heavily pre-treated. Um, they got around two lines of therapy for their Richter's transformation, and they also got around two prior lines of therapy for their CLL. In addition, the majority had either gotten a BTKI or VEN or both um, at some point during their treatment. So this group of patients were um, heavily pretreated, um, really had all of the bad prognostic signs for Richter's, um, and they still um, responded pretty well to this therapy. So I think there's still room to improve around using CAR T cell therapy for patients with Richter's transformation. I think there are a lot of uh, new trials that are coming out that combine CAR T cells with BTKIs and various other um, alternative ways of boosting T-cell effects. And I think that we still should pursue the use of CAR T-cell for Richter's transformation, especially when there's no really other option for these patients, especially after they've um, already been through two lines for their Richter's transformation. Um, in addition, we did a multivariable analysis to look at what predicted um, outcomes and increasing lactate dehydrogenase, LDH, increasing KI67, as well as increasing number of lines of prior therapy were all independent prognostic factors for survival for this group of patients. And so what this tells me is that we should maybe even considering using CAR T cell therapy in a earlier line of therapy than having already received two prior lines. So I think more work needs to be done, um, but I still think that CAR T cell therapy is a worthwhile endeavor to pursue for patients with research transformation. And I'm excited to um, see the results of a few different prospective clinical trials that are currently underway. One is my trial, which is Xanabrutinib plus Lysacel for research transformation. There's another study of Ibrutinib plus Lysacel plus nivolumab for Richter's transformation. And there's another study that is currently ongoing that is uh, Brexacel for Richter's transformation. Finally, you will hear from Brian Kaufman who discusses the underrepresentation of elderly individuals in CLL clinical trials and Raul Cordoba, who shares his thoughts on the importance of comprehensive geriatric assessments and using these to determine the best treatment strategy for elderly and frail patients. We know that the CLL is the disease of the elderly. In the average age of diagnosis, 71, 72. Uh, but a significant percentage of CLL patients are over 80. Some suggest around one out of five CLL patients are over 80. And often, it's not only that they're underrepresented in trials, they're excluded from trials. 
even in some of the trials for the elderly, they exclude, they put an upper age limit. So it was interesting to see that there's been some recent research on these groups. One was presented um, uh, today at IWCLL in the Young Investigators meeting and looked at what the outcomes were for the elderly patients looking retrospectively at data from Mayo Clinic. And what they showed, as we might expect, is that patients who received the new novel targeted therapies did much better and tolerated those much better than the old chemotype drugs, especially the alkylating agents, uh, where the um, life expectancy was considerably shorter. At the ICML, the International Conference on Malignant Lymphoma, uh, back in June earlier this year, they looked at one specific drug, a calibrutinib, in, in, over, in those over 80, and found that it was generally well tolerated and had con 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 comparable efficacy to those in the younger population. So it's good to be seeing that this is being studied. What I push as a patient advocate is that the patients that you're studying should be the patients that you're treating. And this should be include the elderly. This should include people with comorbidities. You shouldn't exclude people because they have a kidney problem or they have a second cancer. But these people are always excluded from trials. And that makes the trial data look better than it is in the real world. And it also leaves a dilemma for the clinician and the patient because there's no data to guide these patients. Almost all of these patients have some comorbidities. I think that this is an important role for um, clinicians and patient advocacy groups to push to make sure that the patients that are being studied represent the real world patients that will be treated. This is going to take some movement, not just from the organizations, but the regulatory organizations, because they can have very finite demands on who's being studied. And in order to jump over that bar, there's a temptation to really restrict how the trials are done. So it's going to take work with regulatory organizations too. In the US, they're making strong moves to make sure that underserved populations, communities of color, impoverished communities, communities that have traditionally stayed away from clinical trials are being more represented in clinical trials. So we have to make that same kind of concerted move that we're making for our African-American communities and other underserved communities for our elderly community. I would argue even more so for the elderly, uh, the introduction of less, target, less toxic, more targeted agents have been a game changer, a sea change, and allowed the elderly to enjoy a higher quality of life with simple, often all oral therapies that give them a chance for prolonging their life and sometimes living the same life expectancy as someone without CLL. It's been a revolutionary change. Older patients with cancer uh, have uh, impairments that have to be uh, checked uh, in um, uh, a geriatric consultation uh, after a comprehensive geriatric assessment. We hematologists are used to check only for uh, performance status and for comorbidities, but we have to move a step forward and to perform a comprehensive geriatric assessment in those patients who are at risk of frailty. And it's very relevant because we have seen uh, that uh, 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 frail patients are going to have worse outcome in comparison with those fit 
but uh, all the patients. So if we are able to identify frailty, we can uh, uh, perform geriatric intervention to overcome this poor prognosis and try to uh, uh, give the patients the same outcome as those uh, fit patients. And uh, with regards of CLL patients, uh, there is one trial, the GLOW trial, that um, uh, treated patients with uh, frontline ibrutinib plus uh, venetoclax in, in uh, older patients with comorbidities. And some older and unfit patients had a worse outcome with more deaths and more events in both progression-free and overall survival. So if we are able to identify which patients are fit enough to be treated with this uh, fixed duration therapy in frontline, we are going to have the same outcome as uh, in the subgroup of uh, younger patients. So to conclude, uh, comprehensive genetic assessment is going to help us to identify which patients may benefit from the best treatment strategy, not to under-treat a patient just because of the age. But moreover, we're going to try to identify unfit patients, not to over-treat them and not to give them more toxicity. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.